Hello, I'm Will. Welcome to ResearchPod. The global war on terror has reshaped life in the 21st century perhaps more than any other event or idea. Decades of conflict in the Middle East and North Africa have left scores dead, an entire generation displaced, and lingering damages to health, infrastructure, and culture. Meanwhile, in America and Europe, surveillance states and civil restrictions have come to be the accepted cost of constant, distant war. As the world rounds on a new war against coronavirus, Drake Logan of City University of New York joins us to talk about Legos, legacy, and life in wartime. Drake, hello. Hi, Will. Hi, thanks so much for your time today. For the listeners at home, if you give us a little bit of the background on your research, what led you to this topic, and your ongoing work. Sure. My research is on the U.S.-led toxic violence perpetrated mainly in the scope of the so-called global war on terror. I began to specialize in my research on this topic after I was working with civilians inside of Iraq who were enduring the ongoing post-2003 U.S.-led occupation there, and during our 2013-2014 campaign called the Right to Heal Initiative, our Iraqi partners were wanting us to hold up as our top international demand the toxic effects of U.S.-led war-making inside of Iraq and the suffering that their families and communities were going through with uh, woefully inadequate resources to treat people for these toxicities. Before that, my research was on the effects of the post-9-11 era of warfare on active duty U.S. service members and veterans in this country. I co-led and co-authored a testimony research project centering on Fort Hood, Texas, which was redeployment central in the U.S. It's the largest U.S. Army base. It was part of a campaign of soldiers and veterans in the U.S. who were pushing in that era of redeployment for the U.S. military to stop the deployment of traumatized troops back to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So it's directly out of demands of Iraqi citizens that my present specialization on U.S. toxic violence emerges and continues now. I recently expanded my work to also include the terrain of Hawaii, where the U.S. military has thoroughly militarized society and politics and covers just a remarkable area of the map of Hawaii across most of the islands with military bases, including live ammunition training areas. I spent six months on Hawaii Island in 2018, producing and co-leading a community-based science study of depleted uranium migration in the island environment that comes from the U.S. Army's exposure of depleted uranium at Pohakuloa Training Area on Hawaii Island. That work now is developing into a second phase, and my new book project is on specifically the citizen science work that I engaged in there with other demilitarization activists. To state some of the terms first, with the background that you mentioned in the work across Iraq and in Hawaii and with returning soldiers, it kind of touches on 
most interpretations of toxic violence, both the toxic aspect from the biological sense, from the sociological sense, from the ecological sense as well, and then the violence in the very immediate sense, and then the long-lasting structures and imposition of structural violence. So I think if we could just like pick apart some of those terms first and how they come together in the most recent paper that we're talking about, about the toxic violence and its legacies in Iraq and Afghanistan. Violence is often complicated in political theory and other forms of theory, but for the sake of simplicity here, let's take Merriam-Webster's primary definition of violence as the use of physical force to injure, abuse, damage, or destroy. And in the term abuse, you have the linkage to the fact that violence is also psychological and metaphysical. It's not just physical. So I include that in my definition of toxic violence. Now, we've already said the word toxic maybe a dozen times. Let's define toxic. So Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines toxic as containing poison or being poisonous material especially when causing death or serious debilitation. Then I combine those terms, toxic and violence, to talk about toxic violence. In my academic article, I define toxic violence as violence which employs or produces toxic exposures in the form of weaponry, tactic, or byproduct. Let's start with tactics, because reading through your paper, there was lots of mention of the slow violence that stood out to me as the long-lasting effects of war and conflict in a region and of the weapons used, which then does lead into some of the weaponry as well. Correct. So the the U.S. has used everything I'm going to mention in right now in Iraq. Immediate consequences of toxic violence are, of course, deaths illnesses such as cancer, birth defects, but then you have an extremely long-term frame of effects, a longevity of effects in which toxic violence, as I discuss in my paper, amounts to not only a form of what Rob Nixon calls slow violence, but also what Lauren Berlant calls slow death. And what Berlant means by slow death is certain forms of structural violence act in long-term patterns of attrition on populations. She takes the example of unhealthy diet and obesity in the U.S. and talks about how those forms of structural harm create attritional patterns. They slowly subtract bodies from our population. They very slowly kill people. And I argue that especially on the ground in Iraq, toxic violence perpetrated by U.S.-led forces has created a scene of slow death. It is a population-level effect, an extremely long-term form of the effects of toxic violence. And then there's the more immediate sense of poison or poisonous toxicity. Could you tell us a little bit about the exact tools and weapons that you discuss in your paper? In terms of weaponry, the U.S. has used everything I'm going to mention in right now in Iraq. The reality is that all bullets and bombs are toxic. Bullets and bombs are always made of heavy metals and other things like propellant chemicals, 
then you have munitions, so bullets, bombs, missiles, etc., that are especially toxic, that are more toxic. So, for example, depleted uranium, incendiary weapons, so weapons that catch fire in the process of hitting their target. You have things like what's called new napalm or Mark 77, which the U.S. used in Iraq. Then you have chemical weapons and white phosphorus, which were improperly detonated by the U.S. military in Iraq. They did not use chemical weapons, at least in the scope of the present war, directly against people. So there you have the toxic weaponry, which in short is everything. And we'll talk about that more later. The second part of toxic violence is toxicity exposed through tactics, so practices or military operations. And the primary example here is what are called burn pits. These are massive pits dug by the U.S. military in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they were operational between 2001 and 2011. Some of them were as big as American football fields, and soldiers were put to work with construction vehicles inside of the burn pits to churn huge mounds of trash as they burned them. And, you know, they would pour fuel within the trash to help it stay on fire. And so these were massive burn pits where not only soldiers were breathing in the incendiary particulate of all kinds of trash, Bullets, batteries, other spent munitions, human feces, styrofoam, plastic, paint, uh, you name it, they burned it. So not only soldiers were breathing all of this in and having it seep into their skin, but also nearby international civilian neighborhoods were downwind from the burn pits and were breathing in their toxic fumes and tiny dust particles for years. So there you have tactics, and then there are byproducts. So this circles back to when I said that all bombs and bullets are inherently toxic because they all contain heavy metals. So the byproducts of scattering bullets and bomb fragments all across the country, the byproducts of that is that you then have heavy metals that are sitting there in the dirt, in the water, leaching into the land, water, sometimes the food supply. You have unexploded ordnance, so, you know, munitions, bombs that have not exploded upon contact with the land or the building. And the military usually does not clean up all of its unexploded ordnance. So you also have bombs in the environment that haven't even exploded yet that can explode when you step on them or move them. And so there you have byproducts included in the scope of toxic violence, which you can already hear. They are also a very long-term scope of toxicity there. Now to circle back to the burn pits, you mentioned the work that you've done at Fort Hood dealing with soldiers and returning servicemen with post-traumatic stress disorder. It does feel from the outsider perspective that active servicemen being exposed to harmful conditions is, to be entirely blunt, monstrous, and that the army would be deployed in a combat area to do violence, that does make sense, but that the violence from the structural position harming its own troops and its own personnel, that's a huge betrayal. 
It is, and it does not end for U.S. service members and veterans. The military in this country takes the issue you are raising very, very seriously. And the military in this country has something in place called the Ferez Doctrine. And the Ferez Doctrine bars U.S. service members or veterans for suing the military for any harm that has come to them in the course of performing their duties to the military. So what that means is that no matter what they've been through, no matter how many of their commanders have, for example, sexually abused them or caused them to not have uh, proper protective equipment when they're churning the burn pits, uh, service members or veterans cannot sue the U.S. military or the government for any of that. You know, they can seek treatment, they can do activism, even while they're in the military, they can do activism. I've worked with those folks. They are incredibly brave. But the U.S. military takes the potential blowback from service members that have been harmed in all kinds of ways very, very seriously. But not enough to allow any repercussions to come back onto the U.S. military or government. Correct. The U.S. Department of Defense, and I quote, says that it prides itself on providing world-class health care to its service members and veterans. But the reality is a stark desert of lack of access to care, inadequate care when you can access it, incredibly long wait times to get appointments, to get access to doctors. The reality is that from the start, from the gate, when you serve in the military, you are put in extreme danger. We're talking about soldiers who in basic training get injured and are forced to run on their sprained ankle, who are forced to climb rope when their back is sprained. And I talked to soldiers at Fort Hood, Texas, who never recovered because their drill sergeant, their commanders, during basic training of all things, forced them to push through, carry their packs, walk and run on their hurt ankles, and now, 10, 20, 30 years later, they are still disabled. Monstrous. It is, and it's only a very small window on what international civilians go through in wartime and the kinds of injuries both immediately due to bullets and bombs and in the long term of toxic violence, what they go through, what they pass down to their children, which U.S. service members also pass down to their children. Uh, we get just this, this small window. I, it's not an insignificant window, but it is a small window on what entire populations of international civilians go through because of U.S.-led warfare. Do you mind if I ask you uh, just a couple of really simple questions, not personal questions? Sure, go for it. Okay, well, um, do you have kids? I do not. I very recently became an uncle. Uh, happy uh, unclehood to you. Your niece or nephew, do they have Legos yet? Probably. I'm sure Lego will be somewhere down the line in a Christmas stocking or so. Okay, so once they do get their Lego set, as nearly every American child has, including the poor ones, it's just the poor ones can't afford like the Star Wars Falcon mm -hmm. set, mm -hmm. right? Once they get their tiny choking hazard Legos, 
would you let your niece or nephew go out into the yard and scatter all the Legos and just leave them there without cleaning them up to let them bake in the sun and let their weird plastic stuff leach into the yard? Absolutely not. Right. So why are we letting our military go out and do the same thing, not with Legos, but with bullets and bomb fragments across Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Pakistan, etc.? Why are we letting them go take heavy metal Legos and scatter them across whole countries and not clean them up, only to have their heavy metals such as lead, mercury, etc., and stuff like perchlorates, which is a propellant, only to have that stuff be seeping into their soil, their groundwater, sometimes their food supply. Why are we letting them do that when we wouldn't even let our kids scatter Legos in our yard and leave them there? To be entirely frank, it's probably because they've got the guns. Correct. They have the guns, they have control of the rules and regulations, and they've taught Americans how to see Iraqis, Afghans, Pakistanis, Somalis, etc., to see them as people who don't matter, whose backyards we can just trash, right? They portrayed these international civilian communities as the enemy others who are basically already toxic. They are already the proxies and the perpetrators of terrorism, which the U.S. calls like its prime form of political toxicity, right? Terrorism is something the U.S. government and really other governments too discuss as a sort of viral epidemic, right? That's spreading with its cells through every country and these cells become activated by radicalizing leadership and they spread pandemically through jihadi movements, right? And so how how I'm getting away from my beloved extended metaphor here. <laughs> I suppose but, it comes back to the violence that we've talked about so far, now that people are either leaving their country out of fear or with the intent to commit domestic and international terrorism, there's this fear suddenly that they will spread, as you've said. Right. I'd also like to ask you, I don't know about the UK, Will, but in the US, a lot of kids, including very young kids, they have these things called BB guns. Do you know what a BB gun is? I do. Right. So BB guns in the US, sometimes their pellets are plastic, hard plastic, but sometimes they're metal. Hmm. You already said you wouldn't let your kid uh, take all their Legos and scatter them in the yard and not clean them up. You wouldn't want to clean them up either because they're so tiny. But then, you know, what if your kid was like, hey, I'm going to do some experiments here. I'm going to take my tiniest Lego pieces and I'm going to see if it fits in the tip of my BB gun. And then I'm going to go out back of the house and I'm going to fire the BB gun at the concrete wall of the house. Now, what do you think would happen to that Lego block when it hits the concrete wall of the house? Shattering, I think would be the word I'd use. It would break at least somewhat, if not entirely. When you take a hard object and you throw it at a hard surface, depending on how hard the surface is, the harder it is, the more and smaller pieces your object is going to break into, mm -hmm. right? So if I throw, if I'm in a fight with my partner and God forbid, uh, I take a flower vase, a ceramic flower vase, and I throw it at the couch, you know, it might break, but into like two or three pieces. Whereas if I threw it at the wall, it might break into 10, 20, 30 pieces. 
And the same logic goes for military munitions, right? But let's persist with the Legos first. So your kid is out back with the BB gun. They shoot the Lego at the wall. Now, what happens with the Lego fragments? All over the place. Dust. And so you have like a a mark on the wall that might have some plastic in it, little plastic pieces. And then there's this radius around where the wall has been struck, this radius of maybe, sorry, I don't know metrics, but like a few feet, where the bigger chunks of Lego fly. And then you have a bigger radius, yet still maybe several more feet, where the even tinier pieces, because they're smaller, they fly off the wall faster and further. So the smaller pieces are scattered even further around your body, may have even gotten hit in the eye with one if you're not wearing glasses. They might have scattered even further back from the wall than the kid is standing. So then there's this larger other radius around them. And I don't know about you, but I'm not confident that if my kid shot a Lego at a concrete house with a BB gun, that I'd be able to, with my naked eye, find all those tiny pieces on the ground. Well, the military faces the same problem in the prospect of cleaning up its messes. It faces the fact that when its heavy metal bombs hit armored targets and civilian unarmored targets, they break. Not only do they break, they catch fire. And what oxidizing heavy metals does is it creates even finer particulate that can be carried off on wind and weather And so you have heavy metal particles that have created these nano-sized and micrometer-sized particles, right? Which, think about the Legos again, the smaller pieces are going to fly way further than the bigger, heavier ones, just due to the regular laws of physics. And so you have these huge radiuses, radii, of ground on which bomb fragments and tiny particles are carried away. I mean, there's really no way to remediate, to clean up it all. You know, you can get the bigger pieces and you can engage in incredibly complex processes, environmental processes to remediate, to clean up something like depleted uranium, but it costs billions of dollars. And Truth be told, we have those billions of dollars in the U.S. right now. This very moment, I'm sitting here and my government, actually just my military, has the billions of dollars needed to clean up Iraq. It might not have them all in the current fiscal year Defense Department budget, but it does have the billions of dollars it needs to start on a very large scale. Um, It's just that it would rather contribute those billions to the effort to continue to manufacture new bombs, new bullets, and scatter them across the globe to stoke terrorism. So we wouldn't let our kid do that either. We know we wouldn't be able to clean it all up, even if we tried. And we let our military do that around the world. What else do kids like to do with their toys? I don't know about you listeners out there. I sometimes set little fires in the neighborhood, but um, I was kind of a naughty kid, okay? Hi, Mom. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
I'm sorry. I I have apologized before and just publicly I'm sorry. But what if your kid was like, hey, I have all these Legos, I got something spare, and um, so let me throw the Legos into the fire. Would you let them, if you knew about it to begin with, would you let them sit next to a fire with Legos burning there? Well, I can't say about burning Legos, but having been to a couple of music festivals where people were throwing all sorts onto a fire, yeah, you definitely want to at least be upwind if you can't stop them from burning it. Right. You know, a child is not necessarily going to know that it needs to sit upwind of its little experimental fire of Legos. So chances are they're going to, in the process of burning their Legos, breathe in some of the um, ABS plastic that makes up Legos and maybe also some paint or dye that's contained in them too. You know, think about just like, have you ever sat around a campfire when you're camping and um, tried to stay upwind of that? You know, it's next to impossible. And what happens when the smoke gets in your face? Coughing, spluttering, it's a mess. Yeah, it really burns your eyes. I mean, I start to cry, you know? So we wouldn't let our kids do that. We let our military do that to our service members and do that to international civilians while the burn pits were operational in Iraq and Afghanistan 2001 to 2011. And there are huge lawsuits uh, that happened post burn pits um, because U.S. service members knew that it was the toxic military operations that they had been forced to participate in. They never chose that, Hmm. that toxified their bodies. Well, I think the choice is an important thing. Like, I wouldn't allow my child, my family's children, any child to do something that they did not know would poison them. To knowingly enforce rules and structures that put people in that smoke, in that pit, tell them to do it, order them to do it, and then deny any responsibility or consequence that is a very different power dynamic correct and this goes to what i say in the paper regarding the dynamics of these toxic practices and munitions in terms of how the u.s treats them here at home and abroad in terms of how the u.s treats them between u.s service members and civilian popul international civilian populations. So for example, just to take the burn pits, um, the the US Federal Environmental Protection Agency bans for the most part open incineration of your trash at home. Mm. You know, it's it produces really bad air quality and you shouldn't breathe it in, right? So here at home, uh, we're not allowed in general to burn our trash, especially at a large scale. Uh, But the U.S. military felt free to do it in football field-sized pits in Iraq and Afghanistan for 10 years. Furthermore, the U.S. well knew that depleted uranium was going to be toxic for its service members and for civilians alike, and it proceeded to use DU in secret in Iraq and potentially also Afghanistan, but its use has not been verified in Afghanistan yet. Um, if it ever will be. And so uh, the U.S. did not acknowledge prior to 2003 that it was going to use depleted uranium in the invasion. It has not since acknowledged the full scope of where it has targeted depleted uranium. You know, communities continue to struggle with the toxic toll of this munition without adequate location firing data from 
the U.S. military. Uh, those of us who've gotten it released have had to pry it from the military's fanged mouth uh, through uh, not really FOIAs because they generally don't work with the military, but through lawsuits. There is still this physical presence of the U.S. Army in the Middle East alongside European allies, international allies, and the consequences of that violence is staggering from the death toll. In terms of the lingering toxicity, uh, what are some of the unintended consequences? You mentioned birth defects and cancer rates earlier. Well, let's take a moment first to talk briefly about the intended consequences, because that is also the context in which the unintended consequences arise. 17 years ago today, this was happening. The U.S.-led invasion of Iraq was happening. Shock and awe was happening in Baghdad. During the course of the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, it dropped some 200 tons of depleted uranium on the population, and a lot of that was in the south of Iraq and elsewhere. 17 years later, we are still seeing U.S.-caused fatalities, casualties in Iraq. U.S. service members and veterans in About Face, Veterans Against the War, are leading a call for the U.S. to finally pull out of Iraq once and for all. They released this on the 17th anniversary of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And so there's this death toll in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, and elsewhere of the U.S. global so-called war on terror, which has only stoked further terrorism around the world that has come back to haunt us. Since 2001, and the statistics are up to date as of about 2018 for documented total casualties in Afghanistan, we have 111,000 total casualties of Afghans and we have 2,400 U.S. service member deaths in theater in Afghanistan, actually above that number already. Then you have Iraq, where the documented civilian death toll numbers around 208,000 people, and the total number of violent deaths in the war since 2003 numbers at 288,000 people. All of those numbers that I've said so far are grossly underreported due to the reality of studying, of researching anything in an ongoing war zone. And so I, as a U.S. citizen, I sit here and sigh when I say these numbers because they minimize the actual reality communities are dealing with in these countries. I would also like to acknowledge that the drone war is a huge part of the U.S. global war on terror, and uh, those numbers I could not find easily enough this morning to cite them. In Pakistan, there's over 2,000 total casualties verified by uh, U.S. drone strikes, and those also create untold toxicities that have not been studied afterward. 
Then you have uh, drone strikes in Afghanistan, uh, Somalia, and elsewhere that are not properly documented in terms of their death tolls. So even finding out how many people have been killed through the direct action of any combat engagement is a fraction of probably the true cost. Correct. Very unfortunately. We've talked about depleted uranium a couple of times. How is depleted uranium used in weaponry, and what is its method of action in terms of toxicity? Depleted uranium has a host of civilian uses that I can talk about, but first I do want to address your question, which is, what is its military use? How is it weaponized? So depleted uranium is a very high-density radioactive metal produced as waste in the uranium enrichment process. It's the trash of uranium enrichment. So when nuclear power plants and nuclear weapons manufacturers are enriching uranium, what they're doing is they're spinning it at very, very high velocities. And what happens is all of the enriched uranium moves to the center of the centrifuge. And what you have on the outside is depleted uranium, which has had its more powerful version, let's say, of uranium removed. Now, some people think that because of this distinction between enriched and depleted uranium, that depleted uranium is not very radioactive, and nothing could be further from the truth. While depleted uranium is commonly described as weakly radioactive, there are plenty of chemistry and radiation biology specialists that recognize that depleted uranium, or DU, is an incredibly hazardous and radioactive substance. Its radioactive half-life is 4.5 billion years, which is also the rough age of planet Earth. That means that depleted uranium's full toxic lifespan as a radioactive substance is 9 billion years. Unless it is cleaned up from an environment completely, it can spread radioactivity to bodies and environment for 9 billion years into the future. Therefore, for practical purposes like ours and like civilians in war zones, DU should be, and I quote, treated as equally as radioactive as natural uranium. Chemist and radiation biologist Ian Fairley said that in his 2008 paper. The U.S. military uses DU in its defensive armor plating on tanks and also as an armor penetrator. Because it is such a heavy metal, it's roughly one and a half times as dense as lead, which we know is already a very heavy metal, a DU penetrator is usually the form, the contemporary form of depleted uranium occurring in U.S. warfare. So within a missile, they engineer a depleted uranium tip that within the housing of the head of the missile, you have this incredibly dense rod that is able to pierce through armor and building foundations underground, for example. So DU can slice through concrete or armor almost as easily as a knife through butter. When a DU projectile strikes an armored target, it doesn't flatten on contact. 
it self-sharpens as it passes through the armor. And this happens because as the DU projectile is penetrating its target, its outer layer actually catches on fire. This fire, this explosion, creates a very, very fine radioactive dust. It essentially lubricates the remaining projectile, helping it penetrate further into the target and through the armor. It's been estimated that upon impact, about 30 to 50% of the projectile made of DU atomizes and burns into uranium oxide dust, and this is going to become important again later when we talk about Hawaii. The kind of radiation you are exposed to if you inhale a depleted uranium oxide particle, in other words, a particle of uranium that has been set on fire in an explosion, if you inhale a depleted uranium oxide particle, it can get into your deep lung. This is important because in your deep lung, unlike in your upper respiratory system, there is no mucus as protection in your deep lung. And so the depleted uranium oxide particle will sit in your deep lung for as long as you are alive and radiate alpha particles, radioactive particles into the surrounding cells. Those cells that are irradiated by the depleted uranium oxide then get into your lymphatic system through your blood and can cause cancer anywhere in the body, as well as birth defects for the children that come of that body. And then that leads into the unintended consequences and long-term legacy of its use across the Middle East. Correct, although I don't want to totally say that the toxic consequences of U.S. military action are unintended. Mm. This is something that I treat at length and I hope not ad nauseum in my paper. It felt nauseating to write, but uh, the reality is that especially in 2003, the U.S. military well knew that depleted uranium had been toxic in Iraq already. It further knew that depleted uranium was toxic to people generally, including its own soldiers. And we know this because the Dutch non-governmental organization called PAX released a report called Hazard Aware in which it reviews the precautionary measures that the U.S. military said that it should have in place for its service members on the ground who may be exposed to depleted uranium in the course of U.S. warfighting, it recommended that its own soldiers have uh, proper protective equipment such as masks if they were going to be on the ground around where a depleted uranium penetrator was striking or had struck things like armor or buildings. So the U.S. well knew that depleted uranium was radioactive, was harmful both to service members and civilians. We already had evidence of cancers and birth defects arising in Iraq post-1991 Gulf War in which the U.S. also used hundreds of tons of depleted uranium. In fact, that number is uh, between 315 and 350 tons of depleted uranium in the U.S.'s 1991 Gulf War. The United States also used depleted uranium in Syria in 2015. 
which was after it had publicly promised that it would not use depleted uranium in its fight against Daesh or Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. The U.S. military used depleted uranium in Syria in 2015 against what are called soft targets. These are non-armored targets, which means that the military does not, it categorically does not need to use depleted uranium armor penetrators in order to destroy those targets, but it did anyway. So I am not willing to say that the toxic consequences of U.S. warfare in the global war on terror and prior are not unintended. Unintended or not, they are certainly present. And some of the statistics that come out in your paper about the rate of birth defects, the cancer rate in children, the medical landscape that is distressing at the very least, well after the perceived war on terror has been declared over or the main body of foreign military activity in Iraq has passed. There's one particularly striking section that I read that mothers giving birth in Iraq and Afghanistan don't ask, is it a boy or a girl? They ask, is it healthy? Let's just take a moment with that reality. The reality, very unfortunately, from Afghanistan is that the war fighting is so intense and the communications infrastructure is so poor that it's very hard to get word from the ground from civilians in Afghanistan. And so let's just take a moment because we have children and we have friends who are having children and we get to ask, is it a boy or a girl? Or we get to ask, what's its name? But these folks have to ask, is it healthy or does it have birth defects that will disable this baby who becomes a child, who becomes an adult for its entire life. We have to ask, is this baby ever going to be able to have its own children? And will those children also have grave birth defects? We have to ask, will it get lung cancer in its first few years? Will it get brain cancer in its first few years? Will it be able to flee Iraq because of the ongoing occupation of Daesh, of ISIS? People cannot flee if they cannot walk and do not have wheelchairs. So let's take a moment with that ongoing reality. The slow death, as Berlant said. Right. So the death from toxic violence is both fast and slow. Babies are born unable to walk or they're, they're stillborn and a toxic weapon kills someone in the immediate moment and then its fragments sit there to leach into the environment and kill on a far longer term scale. So it is both fast and slow, this death. Genocide is a very hard topic to move away from once you have looked it in the eye, but how easy is it for you to do this work and to do these investigations to meet with people either on the ground in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan? or to investigate from the bureaucratic end in America? It is very difficult work, Will. It is work that I cannot not do. As a U.S. citizen and taxpayer, what gave rise to my work on the U.S. military-industrial complex and its warfighting was turning 18 right after 9-11 and witnessing my generation go to war and witnessing my tax dollars go to the bloated so-called Department of Defense budget 
to pay for the bombs that we dropped on Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Pakistan, etc. I couldn't conscience it without action. And fast forward to the present, this work is very difficult. Um, it's fueled by my passion and my responsibility. It's fueled by what Hawaiians call kuleana, which is a relational responsibility concept in which um, the kinds of learning that one picks up from affected communities um, becomes a responsibility in the individual to do something about it. And so I feel a deep kuleana to work on this issue around the world, but it is not easy work pretty much ever, Will. What I went through in my work in Hawaii for six months caused me to come home and spend a full year literally doing nothing but recovering, trying to recover from chronic post-traumatic stress. I was sitting just outside the fence lines of Pohakuloa training area on Hawaii Island with other demilitarization activists, and we were monitoring for radiation coming off the live fire ammunition uh, training areas, and I saw a lot of bombing uh, of the land, of the of this otherworldly landscape in what's called the saddle area of the island, some 7,500 and above feet in elevation. I heard and I saw and my body was shaken by many, many bombs. I listened to the tapping of artillery, of gunfire, and I furthermore feared for my life while I was on island, quite frankly. I was co-leading a community-based science investigation into depleted uranium, and DU is an incredibly hot topic to venture a pun. And activists who've worked on it in Hawaii have been targeted for their work. We don't talk enough as activists about how this work affects us and the threats we face from the state at all. Uh, so that's part of why I talk about it and I do address it in my new book, uh, because it really needs to be known what we go through in the course of this work. And we, as a as groups of collective action, we need to work together to mitigate the effects of the threats that we face because they're prevalent and intense and sometimes fatal. So I have been very deeply affected by doing this work very recently. What I do in my work is I try to mobilize my ongoing heartbreak. I don't try to heal my broken heart because it is the kind of heartbreak that comes from this work that simply will not heal, it will not end unless the violence itself ends. And so I have given up on trying not to have a broken heart about this work. It's a difficult uh, issue to work on, especially rigorously, and it touches a lot of other issues, such as the struggle for sovereignty atop Mauna Kea, which is the most sacred uh, mountain to Native Hawaiians in their country. The U.S. military used depleted uranium, the U.S. Army specifically used depleted uranium from 1960 until 68 at least, 
in what was called the Davy Crockett weapons system. And this weapons system was a mad scientist's wet dream, right? This was just an incredible piece of machinery. It was this large tripod that a soldier would wheel out onto a battlefield and on the tripod would be a, a launcher mechanism tube. And inside of that tube, the army used what was called Davy Crockett spotting rounds. And they were called spotting rounds because they were being used to estimate the distance that the actual planned munition of the Davy Crockett system, they were estimating how far it would fly into the battlefield because they wanted to be able to hit the, the enemy, their enemy, right? And so... Um, DU is a very, very heavy metal, right? So it works well as, um, as a spotting round. Well, I only want to say it works well in terms of being a good... It functions as designed. Exactly. It, it functions as designed to spot how another very heavy metal munition will fly across the battlefield. So get this, the actual munition that would be fired from the Davy Crockett weapon system was a sub-kiloton nuclear weapon. <coughs> yeah, and a U.S. service member was going to have to be standing right next to it in order to fire that thing. What in this godforsaken earth could have made some mad scientist out there create a weapon system that a soldier would have to stand next to? What if it misfired? and a sub-kiloton nuclear weapon was sitting right there next to you. What if it didn't fly that far and it hit the friendlies? And what did they imagine was going to happen if it actually flew into their target amongst the so-called enemy? That it just was not going to create a big enough explosion that it would blow back on the, on the U.S. soldiers? What were they thinking? What if, and I don't want to kind of point out an obvious thing here, but what if, like so many guns, it ends up in the hands of a bad guy or a child? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Davy Crockett weapon system was evil to begin with, but it's had an incredibly evil legacy across Hawaii and across the domestic United States. And just to clarify as a parenthesis real quick, um, I do not regard Hawaii as within the United States. Hawaii has been illegally militarily occupied by the U.S. for centuries now, and uh, the indigenous Hawaiian population and the, the wider Hawaiian multi-ethnic population increasingly recognizes this. Um, certain parts of the U.N. recognize this, and so um, I treat Hawaii in my work as an international site, and the continent, although much territory of the continent is occupied indigenous land as well. I, I treat the continent as effectively so-called domestic and Hawaii as an international site because actually UN experts have recognized the Hawaiian kingdom, which was the form of government pre-US occupation. They've ruled that the Hawaiian kingdom still does exist and that it is it, its sovereignty continues, although it is under US government occupation. So just end parentheses there, and I want to say to acknowledge that the Davy Crockett um, spotting rounds were used at a total of 17 U.S. military installations, so two in Hawaii, which includes Schofield Barracks on Oahu Island and Pohakuloa Training Area on Hawaii Island, and then you have 15 
domestic so-called bases where depleted uranium was also fired. And from all of my research and talking with people about depleted uranium, I have to say that outside of Hawaii, communities in the U.S. are in the dark that DU has been used in their towns and that it's potentially amidst them, right? You know, we don't know how small the particulate is that's created, that was created in the 60s by depleted uranium spotting rounds. It's never been measured properly. The other reality here is that the U.S. Department of Defense directives still allow live ammunition military training installations to test contemporary depleted uranium munitions. The DOD directives still allow that. We do not know if any part of the military is doing that. We do not know in Hawaii or these other sites where DU was used in the 60s if Davy Crockett rounds were also used after. We don't know if contemporary DU munitions were also tested after. We just don't know because the reality is that the U.S. military has their, you know, their primary tactic in their playbook is deny, 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 and then once undeniable, admit. So the public has really no reason to trust the military on anything it says, because you have to take someone or an institution on its word, and when its word is deny, 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 and once undeniable, admit, you have to ask what else are you not telling us? What else are you lying about? Which speaks to the essential work that community activists, like those that you've worked with in Afghanistan, Iraq, Hawaii, and domestically continue to do. It's really critical work. And, you know, we do not have the kind of massive numbers that we need to have in our anti-militarist ranks. You know, I invite any of you listening to get involved we want that. We need that. We are sitting here quarantined in our homes right now, probably still will be when this podcast comes out. And, you know, we in the U.S., in the demilitarization community at least, are very worried about the impending militarization of the COVID-19 response in this country. We're already in California hearing our governor, Gavin Newsom, since March 18th, talking about imposing formal martial law across our whole state. There was a retired general, Stanley McChrystal, on CNN a few days ago saying, and I want to quote here, the military does not need to trip over rules, unquote, right now in its response to trying to kill the coronavirus enemy other. Uh, because it is attacking, and I quote, attacking the American people, and uh, we need to eradicate it. So we are facing a time in which we could see some very dangerous federal regulations on the military bent or broken. We're in a time when we're going, we need massive resources and effective logistics to get healthcare to people because our healthcare system is woefully inadequate. Why is it woefully inadequate? Because of our military budget, most of our tax dollars go to the military and not to educating Americans, not to giving us health care, not to taking care of our children and our elderly, vulnerable populations. And so, you know, it is already a militarized fact of life in this country that we do not have health care right now and that our hospitals and clinics are already getting overwhelmed with people that are suffering 
coronavirus and other afflictions from things ranging from pollution to inadequate nutrition to just like the everyday other realities of poverty, not to mention gun violence, etc. Which comes back to that slow violence, slow death that we talked about at the very top of the show. Right. Poverty in this country is a form of slow death. Our population, our poor and working class population in this country is enduring a slow death and many days a fast death, oftentimes at the hands of our police forces, right? Every day, especially people of color, especially trans women of color are dying at the hands of police because they're ready to draw their guns for any excuse for having a half sandwich in your hand that a police officer mistakes as a gun. It's a true story. I forget which state it was from. So our society is already thoroughly militarized and uh, the creep, the mission creep of the military domestically is increasing all the time. On a personal level, I'm very worried about the military successfully breaking uh, what's called the Posse Comitatus Act, which is a um, very old law in this country um, that regulates the extent and the ways in which the U.S. military can be deployed on domestic soil to help enforce uh, federal laws. You know, I worry when I hear General Stanley McChrystal on CNN say that they don't need to trip over rules. I I, want to ask him, you know, which rules are you not going to bother with right now? You know, which rules are you going to excuse yourself from? Because we are in a officially declared state of emergency and as Naomi Klein has uh, just so deftly outlined on The Intercept this week or last week, we're in the era now of coronavirus capitalism, in which uh, we have a state of emergency. We should all remember the effects of immediate post-9-11 national emergency when we got the USA Patriot Act, which completely stripped us of some very important civil liberties and privacy protections, right? Then we also saw the immediate aftermath be used to justify an illegal, unjustified, and unwise war in Afghanistan. And so, you know, we're sitting here in a state of national emergency, in a state of pandemic. Well, we're getting a tiny window on the reality of life in wartime right now. You know, we around the world in the so-called developed world are sitting here faced with contagion, curfews, and quarantine. The reality is that there are many places in the world right now where coronavirus has to be on the back burner because their countries are at war. They're always on a curfew. They're always quarantined in their houses. You know, we here in California, our, our quarantine shelter in place mandate says that we can go out of our houses for what are called essential functions. But the reality is in war zones, you often can't leave your house even for essential functions, right? Like getting more food and water, you don't want to step outside the door because a bomb might hit you. And furthermore, you're not safe inside of your house either. You face the reality that a bomb might come crashing through your house. A drone might be dropped hundreds of miles, I don't even know how many, from above your house and bust right in without knocking. Uh, Military forces might also just kick the door down without knocking any time or day or night. And these are things that 
people go through on the scale of lifetimes and see this for their children and for the next generation because U.S.-led warfare in the current era is perpetual. It is unending. Uh, the war in Afghanistan is, is well beyond the longest war we've ever had. I want to say here, Will, that, you know, we in the, in the so-called developed world are getting this tiny window on the realities of life in war zones. But we also have a lot to learn from what life looks like in war zones. The other part of wartime reality is that the life ways and the forms of care, the care work that needs to happen and be reinvented during war, during ongoing fighting, these life ways, these practices of care are incredibly resilient. They're robust. They're vivid. They're strong. They've been passed down by generations of people who've been at war their whole lives. These people know how to make food when they don't have any power. They know how to filter water. They know how to make their own particulate masks. They know how to mitigate the sounds of bombs that their children are growing up with. They know how to talk to their children about contagion, about toxicity, about war violence, about government violence, state violence, right? We have a ton to learn from them. And I think we are also dealing with questions right now that we need to, to share our new inventions, share back to people in war zones. In this country, we were out of hand sanitizer and antibacterial wipes, we're out of masks, we're thinking about things like how to make our own hand sanitizer, how to make our own masks because we don't have them. Maybe we're going to learn things that we need to pass back to people in war zones and we need to trade with them. We need to learn how to talk to our kids about the virus, about the military being on their streets. What are they going to think when soldiers in uniform are on their street corner wearing their guns, you know, talking to them or just looking at them? We need to learn from the people that go through this their whole life. I want to really say here that we need to keep coronavirus in context. The dominant media, at least here in the U.S., is treating coronavirus as if it is an isolated viral pandemic, right, that emerged out of a vacuum of an animal that passed to a human and other than addressing some of the economic consequences that the virus is already having, and like a few times acknowledging the effects it's having on our presidential election, it really doesn't address, you know, the, the wider context of coronavirus, let alone talk about the fact that why we're facing inadequate health care here in this country is because of our so-called Department of Defense budget, because of the toxic bombs and bullets it's dropping elsewhere, right? The environments of which are toxic in ways that promote the spread of viruses like coronavirus. Our tax dollars are simultaneously funding toxic warfare around the globe and helping us be exposed to the toxicity of the coronavirus right now as we sit here, as you sit here listening at home.
we have a lot to learn. We have a lot of knowledge that we need to mobilize from international and domestic civilian communities, from people who have been living on indigenous reservations this whole time that had to live through for generations the impacts of the U.S.'s importation of viruses, of bacteria, etc. onto their land. I'm getting too fired up here, so I'm going to try to breathe. Some of my people, my friends, are on those reservations, right, wondering how they're ever going to get health care for coronavirus when they already can't get health care for the flu, right? They're wondering how they're going to have enough food. And these people are helping each other out. Well, they are, you know, banding together six feet away, right, with masks, but they're banding together and they're sharing food. A friend of mine is distributing food to the hungry, the houseless, the underhoused, the elders in the community who cannot go out for essential functions because, you know, they're too, they're too afraid that their bodies will be exposed. Shout out to Crystal Tubals up in Montana. Rural organizing is a whole other beast. People are super spread out. There's way more guns per capita. You know, you're trying to defend your communities from things like coronavirus and the impending militarization of coronavirus response and and right wingers with guns. And it's, uh, you know, if you if you're sitting here quarantined with your kids in Northern California, you know, wait till you hear how people are elsewhere, like in Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Pakistan, you know, the the indigenous reservations of this country. Uh, people who live downwind from Puakuloa training area on Hawaii Island. Think think about them. You know, you got so much time on your hands. You know, have your kids write letters to the kids of Fallujah, to the kids of Baghdad, to the kids of Mogadishu, right? To the kids of Hawaii who are living in either the battlefields, in the case of the Middle East and Africa, or they're living right next to or in the backyards of what I call the battlefields before the battlefields. You know, the live fire military training areas where the U.S. practices for and refines its counterinsurgency operations and its airstrikes, right? So the same kinds of toxicities are being exposed in those areas as are being exposed abroad. And through it all, community and solidarity does provide support and hope. I want to address what should happen about toxic violence uh, around the globe from U.S. military operations. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, number one is these wars need to end. They've gone on far too long. They never should have started to begin with. Um, Plenty of us protested ad nauseum, I will say it there. And um, they just need to end. They need to stop. People are calling for us to pull out of Iraq, pull out of Afghanistan, stop the drone wars. Uh, Plenty of drone program whistleblowers are revealing the uh, true cost of drone warfare on, on U.S. service members as well as on civilians. Some of them are trying to make reparations with international civilians affected by drone warfare. Second of all, until a complete pullout, because even if they announced it today, this would take time, uh, until a complete pullout and ending of the wars, um, the U.S. military needs to, as much as possible, protect civilians and service members from its toxic violence. Um, Number one, it needs to uh, 
uh, not target civilian structures in bombing, right? That's, uh, that's, that's categorically against international laws of warfare. It does it anyway. Hmm. Number two, it needs to stop assassinating civilians. Uh, also shouldn't be doing that per international law, but it feels quite free to do that, especially in drone warfare. Speaking of which, it also needs to stop doing what are called double tap drone strikes, where the U.S. strikes a house or a compound from above, sits there until the smoke clears from the explosion, watching through the surveillance system, waits till the smoke clears, waits till people come from the neighborhood or the medical personnel come to search the rubble, and then it taps again. It kills the people that have gathered trying to uh, rescue folks from the initial strike. Needs to stop doing that, to say the least, right? I'm kind of talking matter of fact here, but it's uh, completely enraging. Yeah, please don't murder people through extrajudicial means. That seems like a, a good solid start. We should not have to be asking this or demanding it. It is outside of the public eye in this country. You know, we don't talk about this generally. The general U.S. population does not regard itself as a population at war. You know, these are things that happen far away that people don't think about right now. It's been way too long in the scope of these wars for there to be mass public engagement on them. That's what uh, political scientists, at least, who study political awareness and social movements see about wars. The longer they go on, the less people pay attention. So the, the U.S. government has that on its side firmly right now. But going back to the list, the short list, at least, of what should happen, the U.S. government needs to fund proper health care treatment for its service members and international civilians affected by the full scope of war violence, including toxic violence. It is the responsibility of the U.S. government that they are in those positions. I'm not saying the only funder should be the U.S. government, but it should be a big funder. The U.S. government also needs to provide service members, uh, and potentially also civilians in war zones, proper uh, protective equipment, masks, right, uh, whatever kind that are needed, gloves, etc., if they're going to be trying to mitigate things like unexploded ordnance in their midst. Of course, the government here needs to fund the cleanup of toxic violence that has already perpetrated and then minimize the kinds and the scope of toxic violence that it is exposing its service members and international populations to at the same time. You know, we have a lot of money that the government could reappropriate from the Department of Defense budget to do things like clean up Iraq, clean up Afghanistan, fund health clinics, fund protective equipment for civilians and service members too. It could fund clinics for the victims of its violence. It could fund clinics that had specialties in treating the effects of toxic violence. It could send money to the Fallujah Maternity and Children's Hospital in Fallujah, Iraq, where uh, Dr. Samira Alani uh, told me this week that they are seeing 35 uh, new cases of birth defects each month in Fallujah at this one hospital alone. And what impairs their work, Will, is that they don't have proper uh, treatment equipment. You know, they lack certain key instrumentation that they need to treat the complex kinds of birth defects and uh, cancers 
that they're seeing. I want to say specifically what they need in case anyone listening out there wants to further investigate or donate money. Again, it's the Fallujah Maternity and Children Hospital in Fallujah, Iraq, and um, Dr. Samira Alani has done multiple studies of birth defects. She said that, quote, we have severe equipment deficiency, which is needed to improve our work, like a gamma blood irradiator, a karyotic microscope, and a newborn screening system. So um, I haven't looked up the price points on those things, but present moment, they can't afford them. And the reality is that even if the U.S. did not want to run its own health clinics, which quite frankly, I wouldn't trust them to run, um, I want them to fund independent, comprehensive testing and treatment for the full scope of their violences, including their toxic violence. Don't kill people and heal the wounds you've made. It doesn't seem like too tall an order. No, it's a, it's it's not a tall order. It's not really a complex demand. Um, this is not the most complex issue of the work, what should happen uh, in, in a certain way. You know, the price point is high, but we have a lot of the money, especially the kind of money that it would take to get started. It's true, very true, especially now with coronavirus, that we need to be uh, reappropriating so-called defense money to our schools and clinics and hospitals and to getting things like masks and um, sanitary equipment to people. Realistically, I don't know if any of the defense money is uh, going to be reappropriated for that, but um, it certainly needs to happen. And that's something that people can call on their government to do is take the money that you were going to spend on dropping bombs on other places and killing other people and use it to treat us because we need it right now. If ever there was a time. I mean, not to say that the last 50, 60, 70 years of worldwide violence haven't been a good time to focus inwards and try and make reparations as well, but this does feel like a very present opportunity. It is. It's it's an unfortunately widespread and severe toxicity in our midst. You know, we're seeing young people in Italy having really severe forms of coronavirus. And, um, you know, it's not just the old folks' disease. You know, we, we are all at risk of a very serious set of conditions. And, you know, nobody's been able to study coronavirus in depth. It's a new virus. So, yeah, coming back to the point before, you know, we're facing a small, very small window in the so-called developed world on what it's like in war zones, because the reality in war zones is that it is very hard to get any kind of research done on these toxic effects, right? You mentioned that you wanted to ask me about the aftermath of toxic violence, right? And I, I want to say that there's not really an after yet or ever to certain forms of this toxicity. You know, they're passed down in the generations. They fly away in tiny, tiny particles on the wind. But there's not really a math yet either. There's no after and there's no math because within the scene of ongoing warfare and decimated public services, decimated university systems, decimated hospitals, you can't really do research, especially the kind of longitudinal research that you need to do to find out what the exact uh, numbers are of birth defects of cancers. You also need pre and post statistics for before and after the war. We don't have them for Iraq. So when you hear statistics about how many birth defects and cancers, the rates that they've risen by, 
they're actually based on inadequate pre statistics, right? So it's very hard to estimate a post with no pre. Which does continue to make the case for having the essential work done by yourself and your colleagues and people like you to get people back on a firmer footing to make reparations for the violence that has been done and to treat healthcare as the essential human right that it is for everyone across the world. What the US government could do if it wanted to repair the situation in the best way is just give the funding for treatment, for remediation, etc., to international NGOs and to the Iraqi people and the Iraqi NGOs who are on the ground already. They don't even have to come from, from elsewhere. The Iraqi NGOs are on the ground. They are endangered by ongoing violence. They're being threatened by their own government, some of them. Shout out to the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq, which is being threatened by its own government for the work that it does. With false allegations leading to a lawsuit regarding how OFI protects women from government and ISIS repression. The goals of OFI are to protect women in Iraq from violence and repression at the hands of the government and Daesh. But this goal is actually counter to the Iraqi government and to ISIS's goals of repressing women. These organizations have very little funding for obvious reasons, and they're the organizations that could, from within, put in place clinics, treatment operations, research with good logistics, knowing the, the terrain locally. The U.S. needs to fund independent and home-based capacity for studying and treating the effects of its toxic violence. On that note, I think we should probably wrap things up there. Drake, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Will, for being willing to cover this difficult and um, indeed heartbreaking topic. And if people do want to follow your work and follow your activism, what would be the best way for them to stay in touch or stay up to date? Sure. Uh, you can follow my work on Twitter. I'm at Drakeness, D-R-3-K-E-N-E-S-S, Drakeness. I'm also on academia.edu as part of the CUNY Graduate Center. If you search my name and academia, you'll find that I'm in the process of setting up a website. So um, yeah, find me, follow me. I'm coming out with a lot of new work uh, in the near future. 